Hi, Melanie here from Aviation Tours, unique itineraries for aviation enthusiasts, taking you to some of the most amazing air shows and events in the UK and Australia. They're leisurely, comfortable, fun, escorted, and to all the places you've been wanting to visit. If independent travels out of your comfort zone, or you just prefer the good company of fellow enthusiasts, on a tour taking in the best aviation, motoring and military museums, take a look at our website, aviationtoursnz.com, for more info and join us on the trip of a lifetime. Or call me for a chat on 021 076 8308. Wings Over Britain is proudly supported by the New Zealand Bomber Command Association. Telling the stories of Bomber Command and the New Zealanders who served. Wings Over Britain and the Wings Over New Zealand show greatly acknowledges the fantastic support from Peter and Carola Wheeler of the Hauraki Brewing Company. And we'd like to acknowledge the awesome support from Mel and Kev Salisbury and Aviation Tours NZ. And a huge thanks to all the others out there who kindly supported the tour and the series. Without them, the series wouldn't have been made. Vintage Aviation News is pleased to support Wings Over Britain and Wings Over New Zealand. And we'll be checking in with reports as Dave's tour progresses. Vintage Aviation News is an organization founded by a group of passionate vintage aviation enthusiasts who love to share the history and technology aviation museums preserve for the public. It's our intention to play a role in safeguarding the heritage of these beautiful machines by providing increased awareness and education through the use of internet-based digital media. Vintage Aviation News is an online news resource dedicated to warbirds, aviation museums, vintage aviation, and aviation heritage, and the many enthusiasts who wish to know more about them. The goal of this site is to provide fresh, daily news content for a large community of aviation fans who visit our page regularly. Vintage Aviation News Online can be found on your usual social media channels and at VintageAviationNews.com. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to Wings Over Britain. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. In this episode, I visited the Battle of Britain Memorial Flight at RAF Coningsby in Lincolnshire in England. The Battle of Britain Memorial Flight is a Royal Air Force Heritage Squadron flying mostly World War II aircraft for flypaths and public displays. And it's a very popular part of British culture. I was accompanied by Barbara Hunter of the New Zealand Bomber Command Association, who I was staying with at the time, and we were given a special guided tour by BBMF guide Julian Maslin. Here's Julian. 
This is a working RAF unit, and at any particular moment, um, the aircraft might be prepared for flights, taking part in flights, or having just returned. And this one here, which is a Mark 9 Spitfire, was up doing an air test just a few minutes before you arrived. We did it go in. You probably did. Yes. 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 So let's go inside. I wanted you to see this straight away so that you'd have the, the full impact of what this place is. It's unique in the sense that I don't know of any air forces around the world that have a heritage flight as part of its order of battle. So when we came through that door, we were on RAF property. We do things the RAF way in every sense of the word. The flight has 12 aircraft, but at any one time, some of them will be away on major servicing. So this spot here will be the Dakota spot, yes. And one of the Spitfires is also away at the moment. But I'm going to start our tour with a Spitfire that's very important to you. Come with me. Now, I had to start with this one, didn't I? Absolutely. Kiwi 3. Yeah. And Alan Dare's comes. Yeah. I... um, there's the young man himself. Yes. Yeah. So this group here, for instance, typical here, when we get to this point, we will tell the visitors something of the history of the Spitfire as a fighter aircraft. Yep. Then we will go on to tell them a little bit about the history of this particular Spitfire. Mm. And this, that is so significant because this Spitfire is, the, we believe, to be the oldest one still flying okay. that actually fought in the Battle of Britain. Okay. Yep. It was made in August of 1940, so it fought in the second half of the Battle of Britain. Yep. And in, it was damaged in battle. And in the, so when it was restored, it spent the rest of the war doing things like training work. At the end of the war, it was due to be scrapped and the scrap value was £25. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and that, that, to some extent, it reflects the number of aircraft that were available for scrappage at that time. Yeah. Yep. The scrap dealer um, realised that he'd got to spare a special aeroplane because of the, the paperwork with it, okay. and that started yeah. a long process of having the aircraft uh, restored to flying condition. And I always tell my visitors that in terms of the fighters, this particular aircraft is the reciprocal of all those values of training, discipline, self-sacrifice, team spirit mm. that we associate with the Royal Air Force and with the Battle of Britain. And, in, and I always tell the story of Aldea and what happened to Kiwi 1 and 2, and also the story that I'll try and mention to you in a minute about what happened at the end of Aldea's life, because I believe that to be the case. You may know different, in which case you, you might want to check me out. But there she is. She, you can see that at the moment she's got no engine on the front, but that will be fixed up very, very soon, and she'll be flying again as soon as it's possible. Right. You can see the, the patches for the four Browning 303 machine guns yeah. at each wing, but particularly from an engineering point of view, you can see how thin the wing is mm. by comparison with this this hurricane here right next to you. Yeah, and the, the difference in the wing thickness, it reflects the amount of wind, wind resistance that the wings give. But it also means that you can understand why the hurricane could take these heavier weapons, cannon there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Quite formidable with the four cannons. On it there. certainly is, yeah. yes. 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 People often ask, you know, how, how authentic are these aircraft? 
it, it's very difficult to be certain about that, but some of the things are slightly improved. So, for instance, if, if you look at the, at the uh, perspects of the pilot's cockpit, yeah. it's a little bit better quality and a little mm. bit better doming because yeah. our pilots have to fly with bone domes of rather than with leather helmets. Yeah. So things like that have yeah, been changed yeah. in the nature of safety. And safety is the big factor. Okay, we want these aeroplanes to be flying 15 years into the future, sure, but we want them to be flying safely this mm. summer. Mm. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We talk about how narrow the gate of the undercarriage is by comparison with the hurricane here. And we say that, you know, that, it, that was a factor, particularly in the grass airfields of that time. Yeah. And um, for that reason, when new pilots come onto the flight to fly the f fighters, they tend to spend their first season on hurricanes. Because okay. right. as you can see, if you look at the cockpit, the, co the position of the pilot is a little bit higher. Yeah. He's got a slightly better forward view than on the Spitfire. If you can imagine the, the Merlin engine, yeah. it's, um, it, it, it is a slight problem there. Yeah, definitely. Actually, that's really interesting. I, I didn't realize that they started on the hurricane and then progressed to the Spitfire. Yes, that, that, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the, the way that the rule book says, yeah. Shall, if yeah. you can put it that way. So how long would a pilot normally spend on the unit, on average? That's very difficult to be certain, because the key word there is normally. Ah. <laughs> um, let me put it to you this way. The, the current CO is midway through a term of a, du a tour of duty of about three years. Okay. When he retires in the autumn of 2024, he will be replaced by a chap who's already on the staff as a sort of learning the ropes type job. Yep. And so that person will take over, having been on, on the team for maybe three years, learning the ropes. Yep. And then at the time when everything moves up, there will be a new appointment made. So you get that sense of continuity. Yeah. Um, at one time, the senior officers on Coningsby were a, had a privilege of flying with the flight. So that would be the station commander and people of that position. Right. I'm not sure that that happens anymore because there's been a change in the organization. Okay. But the problem that these gentlemen had was that they probably only had a two-year tour of duty. And when you look at the other commitments that they had, mm. I'm quite certain that most of them would have said, I wish I'd spent more time flying with the flight, but I wasn't able to do it. Yeah. But usually after about two years. So they will have had some experience of flying the Hurricane and some of flying the Spitfires. Right. But Spitfires such as these here, the Mark 19s, with the more powerful engines, the Griffin yep. engines, yep. these aircraft, they, it takes a little while to get used to those. So that, yep. that they probably wouldn't have got that far. So that's a slightly rambling answer to your question, but I hope it makes sense to you. It does, yeah, it does. So uh, both these Mark 19s are currently under maintenance, obviously. The yes. One's got all the cows and everything else, yes. and the other one has got no engines. So. No, no. Um, we, these aircraft have been on the ground since before the COVID shutdown. Okay. Oh. Um, we're hoping that this one here will be in a position to fly this, this calendar year yep. and the one next to it in the future, perhaps a year later. Um, it, it, it's difficult to, to explain in a few details why it takes so long. It's not that it's... There are so many complications, especially when they're using drawings and information from all those years ago to make the whole thing fit together. Yeah. But the guys who work on them, in fact, all the guys on the, on the floor here, they're magicians. Yeah, they really are. Yeah. And without their brilliant skills, the hangar doors would never open. Yeah. That's the brutal truth of Absolutely, it. Absolutely, yeah. And when you see some later on, you'll see, well, you can see it. You can eat your dinner off the, off the wings and, the, you know, the engine bays. It's absolutely superb. Yeah. 
this is an RAF flight. It is. Um, and it's keeping those skills alive by yes. training the, the ground crew yes. to keep... And then, of course, they were, a lot of them will go into the civilian world later. That's right, they will. Uh, and, and so, you know, it's great because... As you say, most countries in the world don't have this. No, they don't. And so, you know, our world, warbird scene really relies on people who learn in a different way. They're yes. not they're not learning the Air Force yes. way, which, yeah, it's... I mean, aviation's changed so much, mm-hmm. hasn't it? Um, with all the carbon fibre stuff, all yeah. the electronics yeah. and stuff. And yeah. yeah, it must be getting harder and harder now, apart from on a, on a flight like this. Well, you've got guys who are actually learning. Yeah. Is there a school system within the RAF to teach them the old ways? Or, or you know, some sort of training courses? That I they don't do? believe there is. There are, there are technician training departments. There's one at Crossford in, in the West Midlands. Yeah. And I understand that in order to get on the flight here, this is what I think they call an appointed post. Mm-hmm. So you don't get posted to it. You have to apply for a vacancy and you have to show what, you, what skills you've mastered and you have to persuade the powers that be that you are in a position to, to, to join the flight as an engineer. And once you're here, you go through all the training that they can give you here in, in, in stages. Right. Yes, I think right. that's how it works. I'm, so, so I'm sorry I'm a little bit vague. I wouldn't want to be quoted too precisely on that, but yeah, I no, think I'm enough. in the right area. Fair enough. Yes. So a lot of it would be learning on the job. It will be. From yes. the already skilled people. Yes, yeah. yes. How many, how many people are on the staff? Again, it's a very open question. We've got about 35, 36 engineers. Yep. But broadly speaking, they're divided into two groups. There's those in the boiler suits who are here, and there are those through there sitting in front of their computers. Right. And I don't really know how it mm. divides up in terms of numbers. Yeah. But together, they make an absolutely perfect team. Yeah. yeah, brilliant. Can we go back and have a look at the hurricane? Sure. I wanted to start with the uh, w- w- with P7 for the obvious reasons. Of course. But, yeah. um, this, is, connection. this is a Mark II Hurricane LF363. She was built in the in the spring, uh, late winter of 1944. So she was built way after the Battle of Britain. But she is presented today in the colours of an aircraft that could well have fought in the Battle of Britain. Yeah. And particularly today, a Polish squadron, number 303, which you probably know was the top scoring squadron at that time. Yes. And that badge you can see on the uh, fuselage just below the aerial mast that's the badge of 303 squadron and again can turn into my my pictures here there's uh, Johnny Kent he was actually a Canadian oh, okay. and he, he was a flight commander on 303 at the time so he was responsible for getting the uh, the um, pilots ready to fight and the story that we tell is that uh, on one particular occasion where they were up on a training flight one of the poles spotted a I think it was a Dornier, but anyway, it was a Luftwaffe bomber. And against orders, he peeled off and shut it down. He got into trouble, but as a result of that, the next day, it was arm around the shoulder. Well done, lad, you're operational. (laughs) (laughs) So that that story is depicted in the famous Battle of Britain. It it is, it is. Repeat, please. (laughs) There they are, that's the the squadron now. I think uh, recently a film was made about the squadron, wasn't it? I haven't seen that, I'm afraid. No, I'd like to have seen it. Yeah. Sorry, that's right. Ah, that's important. It was based at Northolt, which is to the northwest of central London. Yeah. Not very far. I don't know whether you flew into to Heathrow, but not very far from Heathrow yeah. Airport, right. just yeah. to the north yep. of it. Yeah. Um, yes, she's a fine aircraft, but like all of us, she's had her, her ups and bumps. Look at that. Ah, yes, wow. the fire. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Yeah, that's. 
It's um, that was a shock. It but was <laughs> the fact that it's looking like this again. Uh, oh, it's it's so important that's, yeah. that isn't it? Yeah, took them seven years to do it. Yeah. So this one was was this the one that was the last of the many, or was no? This is the one that we, we I, called the last of the many. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. But you, you you get that that notion of a sturdy aircraft that is yeah. the story that we want to tell. Yes, sturdy, reliable aircraft, and to see to see the Spitfire and this Hurricane leading the Lancaster or the Lancaster leading them. It, there's no way you don't get a, a piece of grit in your eye when you yeah. see that. Yeah. This, this is the, the second of our two hurricanes, and um, this is PZ-865, and this was the last one ever built, and she was built as the war was coming to an end. And interestingly, she was test-flown by a man called George Borman, who was a test pilot for Hawkers, and interestingly, he had flown the first hurricane, about 12 years earlier. Okay, <laughs> so oh, yeah, wow. He was in at the beginning. First and the last, yes, yeah. Yes, he was. Gosh. And this is now painted in the colours of 247 Squadron, which was a, a night fighter squadron operating in the west of England. And we tell the story of the night fighters, how difficult it was for them to operate. Yeah. And the guys that flew with them, I sometimes use uh, that picture to give an idea of, you know, going up in the dusk. Yeah. And um, these are some of the Chaps, it's one of the COs of 247 Squadron there. And uh, there's another one. Oh, there he is, yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So all guides have slightly different ways of doing things. Yeah. Some who come from a more engineering background probably spend a little bit more time on that. In my case, because I'm not ex-RAF, I'm an ex-university college chap, um, I think I probably deal a little bit more with the human side of it, if you right. like. Right. But, uh, You've got limited time, haven't yes, you? Yes, have. you have. Yeah. You don't know what that lot what no, about. No, you know? no, no. no we, we will be given about an hour and a half on our tours. Yep. So you don't have very long at each no. aircraft. No. You really don't. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, should we move on? Yeah. It's good to see the hurricane depicted in something a bit different from the yes. Battle of Britain. Because I think people forget that I mean, they are kind of quintessentially the Battle of Britain aircraft, yes. but people forget that they went on to fly over Europe. They, well, they right. flew in Burma, they flew in the North African desert. Yes. Yes. You know, they, they were incredible aircraft. Really. And there was a little bit of news, um, I think it was, was it yesterday or the day before, which fits into my story. You probably saw the story about them being found in the Ukraine. Yeah. And I, I always tell my visitors that we did give an awful lot to Russia and they stuffed them down coal mines and destroyed them. What I didn't know until this last couple of days, that part of the reason for that is that by destroying them, they wouldn't have to pay for them. And there was some deal. Apparently, America had funded this, this transfer. Yeah. And if the aircraft were whole, they would have to be paid for. But if they were lost or destroyed, then it were written off. Okay. Oh, well, I didn't amazing. know that. Gosh. they better start looking down more holes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I heard a story that after all these crashes... He took the Kiwi thing off. That's how I tell him. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's just a question of whether he did it or whether he was told to do it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but this, this aircraft here that you're looking at, this is our Mark V Spitfire AB910. And she was built <clears throat> in 1941 at Birmingham. So a year younger than that one there. And of all our aircraft, this one saw more combat service than any of the others, okay. completing over 140 operational missions. Wow. Um, I think I'm right to say that 
of the aircraft that are flown today, this one is slightly preferred by the flying officers. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I didn't. I didn't really finish the story, but the the, the office, the, the pilots that we have, the full timers, include to the present CO, squadron leader Sugden, and his immediate deputy, and the operations officer. So there's only two or maybe three, and obviously we need more than that. Yeah. So we recruit a few, perhaps from 29 Squadron on Typhoons or wherever, yeah. and I'll show you in a little while how they get trained to fly these aircraft here. Okay. So some of the pilots are actually doing dual roles. They, they are. They fly yes. Fly. Yes modern fighters and, yes. and old fighters. Yes, and, and the old ones perhaps for the parades or the uh, commemorative events. Yeah. So often weekend work, if you like. Yes. Now, AB has a lot of history behind her. She was involved in the very unfortunate fiasco of the raid on Dieppe in 1942. Right. And on that occasion, she shot down at least one or possibly two enemy bombers. Okay. Um, Probably the most important or famous story about her concerns what happened at the end of her service life when she was a training machine up at a, an airfield in North Lincolnshire. And in those days, it was normal practice. There were grass airfields and one thing another. The pilots could instruct or order, if you like, ground crew to sit on the tail while they started the engines. They were called tail riders. Yes, yeah. And the basic idea was that when they, they felt that they were ready to go, the engines had warmed up and everything was working, the tail rider would be given the instruction to get off yep. and away they'd go. Well, on this particular occasion in early 1945, the tail rider was a lady called Margaret Horton. Mm -hmm. And on this occasion, she didn't get the message to get off. Oh. So the pilot, whose name was Neil Cox, took off with Margaret wrapped around the tail fin. <laughs> so if, we, if we'd seen her from where we're standing on this starboard side, we'd have seen her lower uh, body and her legs, and on the port side, her upper torso and her arms. Mm -hmm. And she was waggling. She could reach over the, over the stabilizers, and she was waggling the, the rudders. And so the aircraft was doing... Okay. Okay. <laughs> and that the pilot was sent a message: you've got to land one circuit of the airfield and, and land, which he did. Switched off, and Margaret got off, none the worse for wear, apart from a few bruises. Wow. Yes. She lost her hat. <laughs> you've heard the story. Well done. Yes. yes. Um, and of course, the the, the the visitors like that. They, they they're curious about the black and white stripes, and these are what we call D-Day or invasion stripes. Yeah. And I suspect you know the story of that. I don't. Yes. Know. Don't. But the story that I wanted to put to you, because I believe it to be true, I had the privilege of meeting an engineer who took part in this, was that when Aldir died, that his, in his will was a request that his ashes be sprinkled over the part of southeast England that he defended during the Battle of Britain. Okay. And this aeroplane was given the task of doing it. Wow. And the question was, how? because obviously you couldn't throw the urn containing the ashes over the side in case it hit somebody. And equally, you couldn't sprinkle the ashes from the cockpit because they would blow back into the pilot's face. Yes. So apparently what they did, do you see that, that, that tray thing that's opened there? Almost like yes, a underneath, there. yeah. Apparently what they did was that they put Aldea's ashes into a brown bag and they wedged it in there. And they had another one that was wedged with ordinary paper on the other side to balance them. And they, the pilot took off went to the designated place where all this was supposed to happen, slowed the aircraft down, lowered the flaps, and Aldia's ashes came out in the bag, wow. ruptured in the slipstream. The yeah. There's sprinkled. Wow. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah, good idea. Yeah. And I, as I say, last, last winter time, I was actually taking around an engineer who was actually involved in that, okay. and I told the story, and he said, yes, I was on that. It did happen. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Fantastic. It is, isn't it? Yeah.
So one thing that strikes me, this is a Mark V. Uh, I noticed it's got the six uh, exhaust switches yeah. of more of the later engines. I know yes. some Mark Vs did have that, but has this been modified? Has the engine been modified? Almost or? certainly over yeah. the years. Yes. Just to keep it going. Yes, yeah. yes. Different engines are used yeah. at, at, at different times for different reasons. Yeah. And um, I was involved in a discussion just this morning about this. And, you know, some of them are Packard Merlins. Mm. Some of them are Merlin 66s. Yeah. So uh, if you look at the history of these aircraft, many of them have had adaptions of that sort. Yeah. Not, it's not just the perspex in the cockpit, but it's what happens under the front bonnet that also changes. But it's all, it's all done to, to make sure that the engines have the, the right length of time, they're reliable, and that it reduces the pressure on the engineers, because if they had too many versions of the Merlin, that would give them a bit of a headache sorting it all out. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean, it's not inauthentic either, because some of the Mark V during the war did get uh, yes. field modified. Yes, and, yes, they did. Uh, yeah, I know that... Uh, a chap that was from my town, uh, well, he lived in my town before he died. Uh, his name was Bill Kane, uh, or Derek Kane, but they called him Bill. Uh, he flew in the Battle of France and then in the desert and uh, eventually Europe, uh, became a wing commander. And he um, he actually had his own personal aircraft in, when he was a wing commander in the desert. And it was a Mark V that had the six uh, exhausts. Right. And it had been modified at Abu Kur, I think it was... Um, called in, in, in Egypt. Yes, I've heard to, it. To get yeah. the high high yes. Uh, altitude. Yes, yes. And he chased one of those uh, Junkers, the high altitude yes. Junkers. Well, ones. did he? Right. And I believe he might have actually got it. I can't remember the story now, but I, wow. I know he definitely used yeah. it to chase it. He had, the aircraft had been all completely lightened, yeah. um, so he could get up there. And because they, they kept seeing them go. Yes, over. Uh, yeah. yes, I've heard of that. He was story. one of the guys that chased yeah. them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, his there is a photo of his one with the that style and that was 1944 so you know as I say some of them were modified in the field yeah. let's go over and deal with these two and then we've, we've done the fight in the Lancaster the, the thing that you'll notice straight away about these two airframes is first of all there are no gun positions in right. the wings yep. but secondly on the flank of the fuselage, just before the round door, is what looks like a porthole, yep. but it isn't. It's a camera position. So these are photographic reconnaissance aircraft, and they're powered not by the Merlin, but by the Griffin engine, which is a V12 36-litre, yep. producing well over 2,000 horsepower, capable of giving these speeds in excess of 400 miles an hour. And these, air, these two aircraft here were built as the war was coming to its conclusion. They never fought in the war, but they did serve with the RAF. Um, and they, they're long-time members of the flight. But it's fair to say that there have been quite a few, as they've got a bit older, engineering issues, and that's why it's taking a little while to get them together. Mm. I always think it's an incredible appearance here, with your, you know, with your camera, that a huge engine like yeah. that Griffin yeah. sits on that cradle. Yeah. Amazing, it yeah. is, isn't it? Yeah. How it's does huge. that work? This is where it And we're commemorating an aircraft that flew in the Korean War, and the, the pilot was able to reach a, a, a height of 51,000 feet, wow. which is awesome, isn't it, in every yeah. sense of the word. Yeah. And he was doing reconnaissance over China, and um, he got it up to 51,000 feet, and then he came back to his base at Kai Tak at Hong Kong in a dive, and there's a question as how far yeah. fast he actually went going downhill. But the, yeah. this wasn't proven because the... Uh, the dials froze oh, down, right. down with, with, but with it's cold, quite yeah. possible that he got close to the speed of sound. Gosh, yeah, yeah. must have. He yeah. would have. Yeah. Yeah. 
And, and of course, there would be pressurised cockpits. They would be pressurised, but yeah. the pressurisation system was probably a bit in the back of his mind as being not entirely reliable. Yeah. So that would have been another factor why he probably felt he wanted to get from 51 to about 10 quite quickly. quickly <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, you sort of forget that there were these sort of aircraft in the Korean War, yeah. uh, you know, piston-engine fighters. Yes. And, um, well, Spitfires were in service until 1955, I think it was, and I think the last Spitfire flight was from Selatar, which is uh, Singapore. Yep. In 1955, I think it was. Okay. So the, this one that is, that has been commemorated uh, flew out of Hong Kong. It did. Went over China to see what was happening. Yes. For the Chinese, obviously Chinese forces coming that's down correct. into Korea. That's, that's right. That's Interesting. Right. Well, only just a few weeks ago, I interviewed a chap who was flying uh, Sunderlands, believe oh, it or not, right. from uh, Hong Kong. Yeah, from Hong Kong, and uh, into over China to check the weather. <laughs> and I was like. I didn't know that you were flying over China. Yeah, it's incredible. Like they, China technically wasn't in the war, but they were. Yes, you know, they I weren't. Did. They I weren't did. declared, yeah. were they? So, yeah. Interesting. And, and and the the, the uh, legality behind these missions was also a bit fuzzy. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the pilot concerned wasn't actually ordered to do it. He was invited to, to do this sort of flying, right. with the knowledge that if anything went wrong, all his bosses would be looking the other way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably the same with the Sunderland I think as well. So. I think so. Before we look at the Lancaster, I'll just take you up to the um, chipmunks. Chippies, yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful they are. chippies. As you probably know, the, the chipmunk was a, designed as a training aircraft mm. yeah. and came into service around about 1949, 1950. And the, the flights had two of these for, for many years, and its function is to help to convert the modern fast jet pilots onto the fighters, yep. in the same way that the Dakota helps to convert the modern transport and reconnaissance air, airmen onto the Lancaster. So it's said that the, an incoming pilot will do perhaps 25 hours in the chipmunk from the back seat. Okay. And the purpose there is that if you are sitting in the back seat, you can't see where you're going. Right. So you have to learn the skills of controlling the aircraft on the ground, take off and landing, as, as you will have to, to do it when... when um, when you're flying the, Hawk, the, the Hurricane and the Spitfire. Yes. Um, and then very often, once they've done, a, they're cleared on the chipmunk, they go to fly a Harvard, which is, as you know, is a bigger version. Yep. I think there's one at Duxford, but I know in the past we've had an arrangement with people in the Netherlands and they've, they've gone there for that part of their okay. training. Yep. You might be interested, the badge on the side is part of the London University Air Squadron. Oh, and right. uh, it's still the case today, but certainly in the 1960s, and we're looking at a 1960s aircraft here in a way. Um, if you were a university undergraduate and you wanted to go into the RAF, you could join the air squadron and you would get some exposure to RAF life as well as maybe some airtime. And from there, when you graduated, you'd move into the RAF. Right, so it's like a, almost like a territorial year. Yes, and I, I believe that still happens, but I'm not entirely sure of how things have changed over the years. Yeah. You can see it's got the Dayglow badges on it, the Dayglow stripes, yep. and you can see the engine cowling, it's always left open when the aircraft is on the ground, and it's a 140 horsepower Gypsy Major aircraft, and, and they always leave it like that with trays to catch the, uh, catch the oil, and, it's always, and it drives a two-blade propeller. I, I would always say that um, I've never met anybody who hasn't enjoyed flying in a chipmunk. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, my best mate's got one, and he takes me up every now and then, uh -huh. and they're uh, such a delight. Yes. A really, yes. really yes. nice aircraft. Yes. 
The, the, the one over, oh, oh, let's go, we can see what I want from here. There she is. Oh yes. WG486. And there she is flying over Berlin during the Berlin War, uh, during, during that part of the Cold War. Right. We were, the job that she was doing was really intelligence gathering. Okay. So n not for us, the, you know, the Blackbird or anything sophisticated. It's an old aeroplane with a cameraman in the back seat. That's <laughs> the British way. Uh, and amongst the, amongst the photographs that he took is of this, this vehicle here. And the story mm -hmm. is okay. that uh, some of these guides were actually firing up at him. And oh. at least one rifle bullet pierced That's the skin it. of that. I'm, I'm told oh, that wow. did happen. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. Yeah, I, I had heard that one of those uh, spy chippies was on the yeah, flight. Yeah, yeah, that's really neat. Well, that's the one. Yeah. So we've got World War Two, we've got Cold War, incredible, and, 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 yeah. and Korean yes, War. Yes, yes. Yeah. And that allows us to say that we are commemorating the service and sacrifice of airmen and women, not just in the Second World War. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I, I wish we could actually go back further, but we can't easily in the time we've got. So yeah. yes, we have to stop at some point. Yeah, absolutely. So here we are with the, the flagship of the aircraft, our, our Avro Lancaster. Okay. Absolutely beautiful. This is PA424, and this was built as the war was coming to its conclusion. It's built near Chester. It never flew in battle but it was modified to fly and fight against the Japanese. So when the war came to its end, this aircraft was, was allocated to a squadron operating in Africa, and at that time they were doing mapping and survey work. So it took part in these operations, and a lot of photographs were taken. But later on, it was used as a flying test bed. If you see the gentleman with the blue blue uh, t-shirt above yeah. it. There's, there's the same Lancaster. Oh, yeah. On the spine of the fuselage is a laminar flow wing. So right. they were using it as a flying test bed in that sense, yeah. yes. And that's how it survived. And that's how it survived. Yeah. When, when they uh, were going to um, put it into a, a museum, some officers at Waddington, who were on 44 Squadron, which was a Vulcan squadron, but it had been the first Lancaster squadron, right. they campaigned to have this aircraft taken back to Waddington. Oh. And uh, they won that campaign, and the aircraft was flown back, and that began a 10-year-long period of reconstruction of the aeroplane back to its World War II appearance. Okay. When that was completed in the mid-70s, the Lancaster, they couldn't run it at Waddington. They had too many jobs with the Vulcans and whatnot. Yep. So they gave it to the flight, and it's oh. been our flagship ever since. Although, uh, you know, for a long time it was... Um, uh, not not available to be inspected as you are today on the ground, but the, the visitor centre has been open since 1988, I think it is. So in in that 30 plus years, 35 years, so many people have come to this and seen this aircraft, and you know that it excites people. You know, the other day it was over Manchester and Merseyside, mm -hmm. and and I know people there, and they were saying, "Oh, we saw the Lancaster. It was so good." You know. Mm -hmm. So, so good. Yeah. So it's still an aeroplane. Yeah. It's got that muscular elegance, yeah. hasn't it? It, it really has. has. It really has. Yeah. I, I was at the Shuttleworth oh, yes. uh, show on Sunday yes. and saw it close the show. And first time I've ever seen one in the air. I've seen a few on the ground before. Uh, absolutely emotional. It, it, it is. was it really fantastic. Is. Yes, yeah. it really is. I, I've known many Lancaster crew members uh, in the past and yeah. interviewed them and some of them were friends. And, and yeah, it's... Uh, mm. Amazing to see one in the air. Yeah, absolutely. I just wish that the, the Lancaster captain, Seb Davey, were here today because I'd love to introduce you to him. He's a very fine pilot and an excellent guy. His day job is flying the A400M. Oh, right. Um, so he knows a bit about large aircraft. <laughs> but he flies this with a particular panache and verve. 
I'll tell you about the colour scheme that she's wearing at the moment. Normally speaking in her history, the colour schemes chosen for the Lancaster have linked to one, completing 100 missions, yep. what we call the centenarians. But on this occasion, they've changed it slightly, and the aircraft we've commemorated only managed 93, I think it was. And if you look at the bomb symbols there, you can see there aren't 93. But uh, it's, so it's a snapshot of, of halfway through its, um, its life, if you yes. like. And the, the squadron is uh, 460, which was a squadron populated largely by Australians. Yes. And uh, that gives a clue to the picture yeah. there. They had a, a chap on the, on the squadron during the war called Vic Ward, and he, he painted the original nose art. And this is a copy of, of what he did. And that's what VW is, is his name there. Okay, yeah. Um, yep. And, and, and we, we, um, we tell the story of it, and I, when I do my bits, I always uh, make sure that the ladies in the, uh, in the group aren't going to be offended by it, because, you know, you've got the, Australia, the, the kangaroo for the Australians, mm. you've got the, the bagpipe for the Scots, yeah. and you've got the Wellington boots, which some, which some say are to do with, there was a Welshman there. Yeah. It's, it's either it's something to do with the Welsh climate, or it's got something to do with sheep. Sheep, <laughs> Of course, they, they want to know about the bombs, and we can tell them about... My view is that the red ones are Berlin, mm-hmm. right. the golden ones are other industrial targets in Germany, and the ice creams? Italy. Italy, yeah. yeah, yeah. Why the first one's got a drop on it and the others haven't, I've never been able to find out. Mm. And I believe that the word leader, it doesn't mean it was the squadron leader's aircraft. It just, I, th- I think, that the Aussies didn't like it being L for love. In the phonetic alphabet. Right. So right. I think it was a bit of a macho take over there. Yep. It wasn't love they were, they were in the business of disseminating at all. And the, the um, aerial above the bombs, that's part of a system called Rebecca, which was a, a radar system that could be used in attacking ground targets, but it was also used to bring aircraft back to ground because it could pick up signals from something called a Eureka beacon. Right. And mm. I think that's what it was for there. Yeah. Have you looked into the bomb bay? No. Oh, wow. 33 feet long. We saw a side of the Yes. Yes. Huge. It is, isn't it? You know the story of one of these that landed at an American base. An American engineer looked up, he said, heavens above, he said, it's a flying Bombay. <laughs> and of course, it's much larger than anything in a, in a fortress or a liberator. Yeah, exactly. Do you know why? Um, no. Well, the, the original specification for the, this type of bomber aircraft, which was released by the Air Ministry around about 1938, I think it is, uh, it was one of those things you see so often in aviation where the powers that be want the aeroplane to do absolutely everything. Right. Uh. Right. which is usually a mistake. Yep. But one of the things they wanted it to do was to drop torpedoes. Ah. And that gives you the idea of the long bombay. Yeah. And from that, you have the idea of moving the, fuse, the wings up the fuselage to shoulder height. Yep. And you've got the idea of, a, of a, a metal bar across the middle, a spar it's called. Yep. And that has all sorts of implications for the aeroplane, partly in terms of strength, but, but also in terms of the fact that um, it's not the easiest aircraft to to walk up and down, yeah, really difficult. Yeah, I've experienced yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. So on, on occasions, I'll oh, just come around here. Yeah. Yeah. 
two things here you might want to see a photograph perhaps. One is the badge of the city of Lincoln, and it's over half the Lancasters and therefore the crews that flew them were in Lincolnshire, so there's a, a particularly strong tie there. And the, the poppies are occasions where the Lancaster has been used to do poppy drops. Oh. And I, I was told, no, I don't know if anybody's ever counted, but I was told that you can, you can cram up to a million poppies into the Bombay. I'm not you put in a big chicken wire net and you use a sort of reverse hoover to blast them all in. And the crews take every possible step to make sure that they release the poppies on the cenotaph or the memorial. Yes. They, they really do that very, very well. Yeah. Fantastic. And here we've got the, the engine. They're doing something to do with the radiators, I believe, at the moment. That's why mm. it's off. But it does allow you to see into the engine very well. And I can't take you on board, but I can, I think, no, take no. you around. You may notice that the squadron letters, the code letters, are different on this side than from the other side. And that is a technique that's been used before to allow us to commemorate two squadrons at once. Yes. So this, I think, is number 61 squadron's letters. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And you've got the mid-upper gun turret. Um, the, the, we, we can't see it too clearly from here. But yes, we can. Do, do you see just below the two brown, uh, three or three brownings, yeah. there's two stalks that come out and they're yep. resting on that combing. It always reminds me of percussion mallets. Oh, yes. Yep. And that's what we call the taboo ring. And the idea was that in, in combat, when the, the mid-upper gunner was spinning the, the turret around, those two stalks would go down the taboo ring and at certain points they would prevent the guns from firing. And the reason for that was pointing at the fin. <laughs> the toe. They want to shoot yeah, your own tail. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh. Never actually noticed it before. I don't well, I, d I don't know how many aircraft actually have that modification yeah. still there. That's the flare chute there. Mm -hmm. um, and there's an Elson toilet just on the left. And uh, I remember some years ago, <laughs> I love this story, it's absolutely true. There were a group of young men here being thrown onto the aeroplane and they were struggling to get into the rear turret. And there was another gentleman here, elderly man, small and slight of stature, and he said, excuse me. And he got up there and he turned left and he went down and there's a bar across the turret like that. Yeah. And he hung onto this bar, stuck his legs under the gun, sat down on the gunner's seat and he said, there, that's how we did it in 1944. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. You'll notice that there's a brass sign on the side of the aircraft there yeah, yes. and it says to remember the many yeah, they and they always touch that, that. yes they do yeah. Yeah. here we are around at the rear gunner's position you, you know all the stories there so i won't uh, won't waste no, your time but it, it yeah it, it always uh, people are always moved by it one of the photographs that they may not have seen that I, I use. This one here of the... It's usually a wireless operator's job yep. with these two homing pigeons. Right. You know the story yeah. of that? Yes, yeah. you're saying yeah. about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this one is where <coughs> Grand Slam is going down on one of the, uh, one of the uh, viaducts that was being used oh, by the Germans right. right at the end of the war. We'll look at a Grand Slam in a moment. Right. But uh, it's, it, it's a big bang, isn't it? It sure is. And... Um, 
And this one, again, I, I often use this as I'm getting to this point here, um, just to give an idea of them flying. Yeah. And I just, people, whoops, they don't realize that it was nighttime operations mm. for much of the war. Yeah. And, um, uh, and how, just how difficult it was to perform mm. these military oh, maneuvers. Absolutely. Which reminds me, I'm glad I've said that because I might have forgotten. I have a friend, a man called Chris Ward, who is, writes what he calls squadron profiles. Mm-hmm. And he has done one on 75. Okay. Ah, now, okay. I, I didn't know you were coming until yesterday, and I, didn't, I wasn't able to get hold of a few copies, because I know my, Michael, my son, has told me that um, books are quite expensive in New Zealand. New Zealand and yeah. I found that to be the case. Yeah. We used to go over to, uh, is it Dartmouth, on the other side of the bay there, where there's a lovely... Devonport. Devonport, thank that's you. It, yeah. Where there's a lovely bookshop there, and you can get stuff oh, there. Oh, yeah, yes. Um, but I, don't, I think that's second-hand rather than you. I might yeah. be wrong there. My other half does books, oh, and right. he comes here and buys them and ships them back. Right. Well, he might well want to get some of 75 by mm. Chris Ward, yeah. because it's a, a very well-written book. And it details exactly what happens to that squadron throughout its life. It, it had all sorts of records attached to it, some of which were more grim, grisly than others, but it, it Chris did. Chris Ward, OK. Chris Ward. I'll yeah. write it down for you. If we yes, we'll time for yeah. a cup of tea, we can do yeah, that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, think, uh, I think Chris Newey helped him with that book. Yes. He's like creditors. Oh, right. He's second, yeah. it, it, people, might well yeah. it might well be. He's taking people through the Lancaster at no time. Right. Chris right. just learned the ropes. <laughs> and uh, we've, yeah... But we've just lost that one of our veterans called Eddie Leaf. I'm Eddie Leaf. And I was in Bomber tonight. He said it was over a handle. And then he had a fall in the rest home. Does, does happen. Yeah, yeah it's sad. I, I read but he was tall, you know, we just couldn't imagine him fitting in there. Well, I, I, I remember um, Guy Gibson, his rear gunner, uh, Trevor Roper. Right. He was a big tall chap yeah. as well. How he, how he scrammed in there, I just don't know. I really don't. How did they even get selected? You'd think you'd put them somewhere else. You would. Yeah. Yeah. He was picked because he had such good eyesight. And he did get a misrespect. Good one. (laughs) And yet we've got another one who's 103 on the 1st of August. Um, He never fired a gun. That's a very interesting point. I've met uh, veteran gunners who were proud of the fact that they never opened fire because they said that that would have given their position away, the yeah. flashes. But I've also read, I've never seen it, but I've read an account written by after the war by a German night fighter pilot who said that that was a mistake. He said they should have fired because it would have put off the attacking aircraft. Right. So it's an interesting mm. debate. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Um, we tell all sorts of stories about rear gunners and, and their bravery and their successes. Yeah. You know. Yeah. 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 Well, it's certainly remarkable to stand in this hangar and see these aircraft. I mean, I've read about them since I was young and followed the videos, um, followed the Facebook page and all this sort of thing, and it's just brilliant to see them. Um, so, I, as I said, I saw the Lancaster flying on Sunday. Yes. And um, are they going to be out and about again fairly soon? They, they will be, but where? I, there is a, an air show this weekend, I think it's at Torbay on mm-hmm. the south coast of England. Mm-hmm. So they will go there, weather and serviceability permitting. Yeah. You really have to look on the Battle of Britain uh, Memorial Sorry, Flight website and they'll yeah. give you up to date. But it can change at the last minute because of serviceability problems or weather problems. Or weather, yeah. yeah. I'll just I'll just show you the engines here. You might not. Yeah. It's got the contra rotating. Yes. That, that reminds me that the, this engine came from a Shackleton. 
Ah, yep. And yep. Um, of course, the Shackleton was a direct descendant of the Lancaster, as you know. Yes. Um, but what it reminded me of is that I had the privilege of being, I've just forgotten the name of the RNZAF base just to the north of Auckland. Fenerbahce. Where they flew the last, the, the last flight of Orion's. Yes. When I was there in, uh, in, in, the, in January. Yep. And I took my, my granddaughter, and it was a, a rotten, weathery day. Uh-huh, yeah. But we saw them take off, followed by a Hercules. I'm not sure what that was doing, but it was wonderful to see them go. The Hercules had photographers on board, it would and have they done. were doing what, some uh, formation what, stuff. Yeah. yeah, they would have had to have gone up a long way to get some clear sky out yeah. because it was pretty <laughs> exactly. low-level clag. Yeah. Yeah. But look at her. She's, what a wonderful piece of kit, isn't she? Really see, and especially telling the younger people. Every piece of that was designed in a draftsman's office yeah. using pencil, paper, and a slide rule. No yeah. computer aided. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always find it remarkable when I start thinking about every single little component somebody's designed it, then they've yes. had to build it, someone else has had to build yes. it, and then it's had to be tested, and then it's had to be really, really tested that's for so heat, heat and wear so and everything. And, and, you and know, that's that, what makes the Merlin in particular so successful it wasn't thrown together it was tested and tested and tested and and therefore it when it was used in the war and as you know it was used by uh, fast patrol boats as mm-hmm. well as by tanks i yep. think and other vehicles yep. so it, it was a, a very important piece of kit absolutely and w- what i have to do well, I, I don't have to but i like to do it i like to bring the role of women into the picture as much as i can and i always tell the story about how these engines this generation were funded in a way by a woman called Lady Houston. Yeah. You know that story of Lady Houston? I have heard that, yeah. yeah she, she, she put a huge amount of money into the development of these engines around about 1930, not as war engines, but as racing, racing engines. Yeah. Well, what she didn't realise, and nobody else did, was that she was actually in, investing in the security of the country. Because without her investment, we might not have had engines of this calibre ten years later. No. So she is important. The other lady is Tilly Schilling. Have you come across the story of Tilly Schilling? I think Matilda. I have. Uh, is that Miss Schilling's orifice? That's the one. Story? Yeah, yes, 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 yes. To yes. tell the story for the listeners. Well, the, the story is that the problem that they had with the Merlins in 1940 was that they were using carburetors to get the fuel into the cylinders, which was fine if the aeroplane was flying in the straight and level. Yeah. But in a dive, the, the carburetor would flood and the engine would stop for a moment. And the real disadvantage was that the Luftwaffe were using Daimler-Benz engines, which had fuel injection. So Tilly Schilling, who was down at Farnborough, was asked to look into this, and she did some maths on the fuel flow, and she ended up producing what you would think of as a washer of very precise dimensions. And she she went round with her team to all the squadrons and inserted this washer in the carburetor as a temporary measure, and it worked. And that washer with a hole was known as Tilly Schilling's orifice. (laughs) The story about her that I like is that before the war, she was actually, when you see photographs of her, you see this lady in, in the tweeds of the day with a handbag over the arm and the stovepipe. Not a bit of it. She was a, a motorcyclist of some acclaim. She rode a, a, a motorcycle around the bank track at Brooklands, which is now a museum. Yeah. It's 109 miles an hour. Wow. And she was being courted by a young man. And before she would accept his advances, he had to prove himself. So he went round at 106 miles an hour because <laughs> he was a bigger built person. Yeah. And she let him off the other three. <laughs> <laughs> And after the war, she was involved in the early period of, of rocketry. In, oh, in, in. So she was a remarkable lady. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, the third element is that these, were, these and these aircraft were largely built by women. 
Yeah. And I tell a lot of stories about that, how they were built in the factories of Britain. And of course, once the aeroplanes like the Lancaster were built, there was this organisation, the Air Transport Auxiliary, which took them to the, um, air, the, the bases where they were needed. Yes. And those were very often flown by women. Yes. Yeah. Remarkable. Yeah. Shall we yeah, go and see yeah. if we can find the bombs? Would that yeah. be interesting? Yeah. Um, I think we could go and go this way. I would always start with um, the one in the middle, 500 pound general purpose, sometimes called an iron bomb. Yeah. And the Lancaster could take you know, 14 or 16 of those. Uh, they could also be dropped by Swiftmouse and Hurricanes. Mm -hmm. um, as you know, they, they weren't particularly effective weapons because the power charge was fairly limited and the thickness of the case fairly massive. Yeah. But they had, that's what they had. And they had others of a bigger capacity, 1,000 pounders. They had 2,000 pounders. 4,000 pounders, which were like oil drums yeah. with no aerodynamic potential at all. Yeah. They were really blast bombs. Yeah. And of course, they had the incendiaries. Mm. Now, into this situation came Barnes Wallace of Dambuster. I call it a, a depth charge, but people call it a bouncing bomb. And he was actually developing this before he broke off to develop that rotating mine. And this is what he calls Tallboy. Mm. This is about five and a half tons. And the front end is one piece of molybdenum steel. It has to be milled to a very high level of accuracy. And being one piece, it meant that it had a, a tendency to go through the, t the target, through the earth, through the concrete. And it was filled with an explosive called torpex. And at the tail end there, the fins were offset by about four degrees so that the aircraft spun in flight. Mm. Sorry, oh, not so the, the aircraft, bomb, I beg your pardon. The bomb spun yeah. in flight as it was released. So it would drill. So it would drill went. into... Yeah. By the, if, it was, if it was released at about 14,000, 15,000 feet, by the time it got to the ground, it was travelling uh, transonically. Yes. And that would give it a lot of kinetic energy, so it would go through steel, earth, wood, whatever. These were dropped by 617 and 9 squadrons from the summer of 1944 onwards against uh, military targets, including the rocket sites in northern Europe, northern France. Yeah. But in the autumn of that year, weapons of this sort were used to sink the German battleship Tirpitz. That's another one of our veterans, Arthur Joplin. Oh, um, yeah. uh, you knew Arthur Joplin? I saw he died recently. Yeah, he did, yeah. I, I knew his, his uh, teammate, was he a wireless operator? Fish, um, Basil Fish. Basil Fish, I knew yeah, him. I've been up to see Basil Is Fish. Is he still with us? No. No, I thought I, he died. I, I went up he was he still alive, was, yeah. but he, and his daughter. He, lovely, lovely man. But yeah. I, I, I thought, when I met him a few years ago, that he was still carrying almost a sense of guilt because the crash that he was involved in. Oh, I don't yes, think it was his fault, yeah. but no. uh, in any sense, I think he did it the best he could. Yeah. But in some way, I think he felt that he was he got the endorsement and, they, he did. and he ripped it out. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, Arthur got hit, taken off at the end before he died, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, whilst we're talking about this, I should tell you that the, one of my great moments was meeting Les Monroe. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was up at the Petwood Hotel and he was doing um, book signings. Okay. And he was being worked, he wasn't a young man, he was well in his 90s. Mm. He was being worked like Billio to sign these books and he yeah. never flinched. Uh, he was a, a remarkable He man. wasn't, absolutely. He was yeah. a very, very special man indeed. I, I got to do the last interview that he did because he said no more interviews, like full, full interviews. And then. Um, and then when I asked, he said, okay, just one more, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> that which, was, which was yeah. fantastic. And, and he was really good. He covered his whole service career. And um, a little bit later on, I was at the 
Wings Over Wire Wrapper Air yeah. Show, and oh, yes. he got up into the uh, Ever Anson that we got flying there, Mark One Anson, and he flew it. Did he? He had Bill Reed beside him, and oh. Bill took off, <laughs> and let him fly it, and yeah, he, that would have been something. Bill to thought see, it? Bill thought that was brilliant having Les Monroe fly as Anson. Oh yes. Yeah. 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 Well, let's have a look at this last weapon here, and I'm going to take this model here. This is a, a new development there. Yeah. Let's have a look at the. This is the. Wow. This is Grand Slam. Right. So th this is this is um, Barnes Wallace's magnum opus. This is Grand Slam, yeah. ten ton bomb, and uh, it's basically the same as um, as the Tall Boy, um, but bigger. Okay. Yeah. I tend to think of it as a Tall Boy with steroids almost. Yeah. Only forty-one of these were dropped in the last few weeks of the war, and again against military targets. And one of the targets that was well, I'll, I'll show you. This is, this is what it looked like. They took away the bomb bay doors. Okay. The, the bomb was actually held in place by a chain, a chain there, yeah. and the chain had an electromechanical lock on it, so that when the when the bomb sites told the bomb aimer that they were in the right place, the lock would be released. The bomb would drop down, and the aeroplane would go up about 300 feet because of the weight. Because the weight release, yeah. And the, the crews were told that the bomb was so expensive, they should bring it back if they couldn't find the target. Uh, wow! <laughs> wow! And we, I, I like to finish the tour by saying, "How would you feel about landing with a 10-ton uh, bomb yeah. on you?" <laughs> yeah. No, no thanks. <laughs> this is the picture of. Uh, these grand slams going off at the viaduct. And of course that's after it's buried itself as well. Yes, so it is. It caused an earthquake. Yes. It shook everything yes. to pieces. That's right. Yeah. So there we are. From the point of view of the visitor's centre, the, the figures that are mentioned are that we can expect to get between twenty-five and 30,000 visitors a year. Okay. Uh, that would probably be a maximum, I would say, and I don't know that things have really recovered totally from the COVID lockdown. Yep. But certainly the summertime is a very busy time, yes. and we'd be expecting to do over a 1,000 a week in the summer period. Gosh. Yeah. Oh, wow. So you have quite a big team of volunteers. Well, yeah. we could, not always. We, <laughs> we have something like an establishment of about 45 guides, okay. roughly... I would say half to two-thirds of whom are ex-RAF. Um, but for obvious reasons, though people can't do it for their own health reasons or family reasons. Yep. And at the moment, my shift on Thursday is a little bit light on guys. We've got two guys who've just recently joined us who were up at Scampton. And, of course, they know a great deal about the dams and Lancaster and things. But yep. they're, they're wonderful guys, and they will settle in very quickly, and mm. there'll be additions. Um, yeah, so that's roughly how it works. Yeah. So for anybody out there that is wanting to come along and uh, do the tour and have a look at the hangar, yes. um, I know that there's information on the BBMF website. There is, there is. But you don't actually need to book, do you? You just come and wait. No, you come and wait. You yeah. come to the counter, you book on the next available tour, and then you're taken around, as these people are here that you've seen, mm. by somebody like myself. Yeah. Uh, what I would say is that um, the hangar closes at 4.30, and that's an odd sort of time for many people. That Many people say, well, surely you should be open much longer than this. But mm. that's how it is. So our last tour is actually 3.30. Oh, yeah. And it's, that has to be a little bit shorter. As I said earlier, normally my tours are at least an hour and a half. Right. But the last tour of the day is usually about one hour. And not on Sunday. Not on, well, we don't really open up during the weekend. No. Right. Because a lot of the planes... That's right. That's absolutely right, yes. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it.
That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.